Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph ben Mergie. Welcome to the podcast, Not That Kind of Rabbi. As always, I shall clarify, I'm not a rabbi, but if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. So I just wanted to make that clear from the beginning. Uh, I am a spiritual director, however, so there is something in there that is rambling about in my little head. Um, Today, I want to talk about something we don't talk about, which is grieving. I want to talk about that process. I'll tell you that the short form of the Jewish version. So when someone passes away in Judaism, what we do is we have a seven day unless the Sabbath is in the middle and then we stop where the Sabbath is because you don't do this on the Sabbath. Um, we do something called Shiva. And many people have been to a Shiva and often don't quite know what to do. The people who are mourning, actually you take the cushions off the couch so that, or you get little chairs so that they sit lower than everyone else. Two reasons. One, you can identify with them that they are the mourners because they are in a different seating position. And secondly, they are in a position of receiving from you. So you do this for seven days. Family stays together for the seven days. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to do because I, 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 growing up in that tradition, I always wondered, what's it really like to actually have this happen and then just go home? Just have something and go home and be alone again and ghosts in the house and it's just hard. So for a week, everybody's together and people come over and they supply food so you don't have to cook and think about it. And uh, you're to tell stories to each other about that person. Um, And there's certain things you cover the mirrors so that you don't find yourself looking at yourself and thinking about yourself. Uh, And you don't say goodbye when you leave the Shiva house. You say, I'll see you later. So there's all little things that can happen. You don't bring gifts. You know, uh, my son was just, one of my sons, one of my older sons was just uh, going to a Shiva and he said, dad, am I supposed to like bring a bottle of wine or something? I said, no, you're not supposed to do that. It's not a, it's not a party. It's a, a morning house. Um, so then what happens after that is it's a month where you have an in- intense period of mourning And then you have 11 months in total where you're not really supposed to go to parties and you're not supposed to, you know, expect or have people expect of you big social life. Uh, You're really kind of taking in the soul of that person because the belief is that the soul stays close to us for a period of time. And then over that 11 months makes its journey away from us into its own realm. Uh, And, religious, you know, observant religious Jews actually every morning and every evening go uh, to synagogue uh, to form a minion of 10 people, a community, and uh, they stand at certain parts of the service and do what's called the mourner's Kaddish. And you, you recite it out loud, led by the rabbi, and we all know it by heart at a certain age. Um, and that actually, the interesting part of that little ceremony as it were, that prayer is nothing to do with death at all. It, it is thanking God for life and rejoicing in the fact that life is there and the challenge to take life and make the best meaning out of it. So it's, it's kind of a, it's seen as, you know, part of mourning, but it's also part of reaffirming that you are alive and that there is a life that you have to figure out to live. So that's the little um, pamphlet on, how we go about it. And every culture and every tradition is different in this sense. And uh, at one point, you know, when I was working in the CBC, I went to them and said, you know, I'd love to do a 10-part series. And said, oh, oh yeah, on what? I said, well, it'd be global, it'd be fantastic, but it would be about death, death and dying. And they looked at me like I was nuts. Who would want to do that? And I thought, who doesn't think about that? We all think about that. So uh, the answer was a curt no and moving on. And one, one of the executives said, well, who are we going to get to advertise on that? Which really wraps up the entire public broadcasting conundrum in Canada at that point. So there you go. Anyway, uh, I wanted to talk to this person for quite a while. I've been an admirer of her broadcast career and uh, her voice as part of the culture of the country. And uh, we think we have lots to talk about. So uh, via Skype, I'd like to say my hellos to Aaron Davis. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Ralph. What a, what a beautiful introduction. I love when I can learn something new. It's, uh, it sounds, it sounds, I love the traditions around it. And the fact that they didn't want to talk about death. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, because as you say, it's kind of on everybody's mind. And the more we talk about it, the more we learn the language of loss, the less mystery and stigma there is around it. So good for you, at least for pitching it anyway. Well, you know, I find often that people don't have much of a vocabulary around dying or death that they don't really know what the language is. And there's a lot of trying to cheer you up stuff, right? Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, it comes from the best place. But I saw, I heard a line on the the Apple TV show, The Morning Show. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Jennifer Aniston's character. And she was saying to someone who'd been fired, there's nothing I can say that's going to make it better and a million things I can say that'll make it worse. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's good, you know, because that, you know, because being fired is also a death in a way. So it, it translates very well to what we're talking about today. So I want to talk about being fired because I always remember that CHFI, I think it was, said you're fired and, yep. and then came back, I don't know how much longer later and went, anyway, about that firing thing, kind of kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. T- walk me through that experience of you're fired and, my God, won't you please come back and save our ass? Well, gosh, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. And it's one of those things where you look back and go, oh, I just wish I'd enjoyed that one year that I had off. <laughs> um, you know, not knowing, right? It's that period of not knowing. They say that when one door closes, another one opens, but it's hell in the hallways. And I was in the hallways and I was in hell. But what happened was in 1999, my longtime 11-year partner, Don Daynard, retired. And uh, I was paired up with another man, Bob McGee. And we just didn't have that that you know, strange magic called chemistry or, or the trust that had come from being dance partners for so long. And it just didn't click. And, uh, as, as the ratings, they, they settled and then they sort of started to drop down the hall. There was a station called kiss 92.5. And of course it's back in Toronto now, but back then it was a, a, a morning show of mad dog and Billy. And they had spent a ton. Rogers had spent a ton advertising this duo. And then when it looked like, Hey, you know what? We could, we're, Pulling the plug on Kiss because it's not working. Let's put Mad Dog and Billy, who is, of course, Jay Michaels now, um, always was. But um, let's put them in at CHFI. And we will, and I'm not kidding, as one of the managers, not the one who fired me. I love Julie. But as one of the managers say, we'll euthanize CHFI. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Right? Was that ever good? So anyway, they came in and um, a lot of people really hated that their cheese was moved as the old, uh, you know, the, mm. the marketing book said, who moved my cheese? And uh, the ratings dropped. And after a year, I went over to fill in on a maternity leave over at Easy Rock, where Mike Cooper was doing the morning show. And right away, it was like lightning in a bottle. And their ratings started to rise. So it didn't take long for CHFI to say, wait a minute, this is what we've got to do. Because uh, as I understand it, there was a board meeting and someone said, well, can't we get somebody like Aaron Davis? And someone said, why don't we try for Aaron Davis? <laughs> so, uh, and I hate talking about myself in the third person. Um, so I, I took the phone call, had a coffee. The very first thing that Julie Adams said was that she was sorry. And I had always, always wanted to work for this woman because she cared about her staff. She loved talent. She's an amazing, amazing manager in every way. And so I said, yes, but I want to bring Mike Cooper with me, which wasn't exactly their plan because they wanted to kind of bring up the younger demographic. But boy, it worked. It worked for 11 years. And uh, it was just one of those crazy, wonderful radio stories that, that, you know, you could see the ratings come down. You could see them come back up. And how many of us get a chance to do that? And I've, I've always been just so grateful for it all. So let's the hallway. What happened in, ah. in the hallway? In the hallway kind of like in the Navy, but not nearly as much fun. Um, in the hallway, we uh, the very first day that I got that call from Julie, uh, I was at the cottage. We had a place up on um, Trent Canal near Beaverton. And I took that phone call and I went into the kitchen and I reached above the fridge and said, well, if this isn't a good enough reason to start drinking again, because I'd been, I knew that I was kind of coming to rely on booze to deal with my stress and my life a little too much. But I'd stopped for about three months and went, nope, this is a good excuse to drink. So in I went. Mm. And I did. And there was a lot of crying and a lot of uh, self-pity. But also in that time, there was a tsunami of well-wishers who wrote to me. And uh, I, I put bun imprints on a lazy boy chair, answering every single one of those emails, so that when I went back, 
to Easy Rock and then back to CHFI, I was able to write to those people and say, hey, hey, here's where I'm going to be. And that really helped to kind of move the needle. Did so you, it was a real big combination of, of things. So I sometimes wonder when, when we're let go from something, our own identities and Oof. all wrapped up in who everyone thinks we are and who we've made ourselves to be. What happened mm-hmm. to your sense of self in that time? Ralph, I didn't have one. Uh, I had always been since 1988, which was just like six years out of college because I graduated in 82 and then it was Ottawa, then CKLW in Windsor and then Toronto. I'd always, always been CHFI's Aaron Davis. And I welcomed that. Every place that I went, I knew I was representing the radio station. Um, Our daughter was raised to be on your best. That was our little phrase in the house because... uh, you know, people were looking and people wanted to come over and say hi when we were having dinner or no matter what we were doing. So it was always like fronting all the time. And I represented CHFI and they had me in TV ads and all of that. And it was wonderful. Um, but that was completely and utterly my identity. So when that's taken from, you know, pulled out, the, the rug pulled out from under your life, you're left I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to leave broadcasting, maybe open a yarn barn in, in Alberta or BC, you know, just get out entirely because I just felt, well, if I'm too old at 40 um, or 39, I guess, um, for CHFI, then who wants me? Wow. And I just, it was just a complete, complete and utter breakdown. So that's, that's how that all went. As it is for so many people who lose their jobs in any sector, any anything in which they've invested their selves, themselves and their, and their soul. So did you know at that time that you needed some sort of mourning mechanism for all that? Besides I having didn't a drink? Realize, yeah, right. Besides my friend Greg Goose and my ami Pinot Gris, um, I, uh, I, I did go to see um, a psychiatrist right away, and, uh, you know, he tried a bunch of different antidepressants and stuff, which doesn't really work when you're drinking, because when you're drinking, you're, you're raising your serotonin levels, and your brain goes, oh, you got this. Okay, I don't need to produce any. So it just drives you further into depression, which is fun, till you pick up the next time. Uh, I saw him. Uh, I went away to different retreats and that sort of thing, tried to delve into meditation and and stuff, but I was just, I was just lost because, you know, I didn't sort of equate it as a death at the time. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the five steps, which are actually for the person who's dying, not the one who is left behind. But, um, yeah, the, it was a death. There's no, there, and at the time, <laughs> funnily enough, I thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much. Mm-hmm. Did you have yeah, a spi- right. did, spiritually growing up? Did you have a, a religion you were engaged in or a spiritual sense of yourself? I was raised Roman Catholic, but um, let's say we weren't religious about it. My oldest sister, I came from four girls. I was three of four. Um, and then they just gave up having a son. Um, <laughs> we we would go to church until my mom, my dad even converted to Catholicism. He was Air Force and he was posted up in the Arctic and he found a priest and, and converted from, I guess he was a Baptist. And that's why none of his people came to their wedding, which mm. is just so insane. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and so we were raised Catholic. I did the sacraments, went through all of those, went to Catholic high school. But my oldest sister stopped going to church as soon as she was able to have an opinion. And my mom, I'll never forget her saying, I just don't get sitting in church for an hour and then trying to, everybody's trying to kill them, kill, kill each other, getting out of the parking lot afterward. <laughs> so, you know, the, the discordance of it all didn't resonate with my mom. And as soon as I got old enough to wonder why there weren't more women in roles in the church, I started to kind of step back too. But I loved the sacraments. I loved the ritual. I loved the smell of the incense. I love the stand up, sit down, kneeling, stand up. I love all of that and the prayers. And because there's that sense of ritual that I think that as, as humans, as creatures, we all sort of like to fall back on and have in our times of need. So that has stood me well. Yeah, I've always wondered about the, um, when you decide that an organized religion isn't your cup of tea, uh, it's not speaking to you, it's not helping you, but what do you do to fill those gaps of ritual and tradition? You know, how do you, how do you keep those pieces and how do they mean anything and not just become empty? 
That's a good question. And and in going to retreats like a place called Kripalu in the in the Hamptons, which is you know a great a great meditation place, mm-hmm. I was amazed at the number of people with Jewish surnames and the number of meditation gurus who have Jewish surnames. Yeah. And and I thought you've gone from one ritual in search of another one, and that proved to me that there can be a path from something you were raised in that's in your blood, that's in your heritage to something that kind of opens things up a little bit more for you in the way that you want. So that's kind of what I did. I do meditation and at night, if I can't fall asleep, besides doing the alphabet backwards, I will do um, Hail Mary in French. Mm. Um, you know, just just things that, that are my comfort zone, my, my ritual, the things that I fall back to. So yeah, I think if you have that place where you hold it dear, the ritual and the beauty of it, um, you may continue to search for it. That's so interesting. And, and by the way, with the Buddhist thing and, and the Jewish surnames, Cornfield, Goldstein, Salzburg. Right. So these. Yeah. Are, so this um, and uh, you know, and in uh, Massachusetts, there's the uh, uh, Meditation Insight Center, and the, the phenomenon in North America is Jubus. That's what. Jubus. That's so great. Yeah. I love that. So there's there really is a, a preponderance of Jewish people in that. And there's a wonderful book by a guy named Roger Kamen. It's called The Jew and the Lotus. And it's about uh, Judaism and some of its renewal practitioners, of which is my kind of tradition now, uh, who go to see the Dalai Lama. And from the mm. Dalai Lama, they want to know, how do we reinstate a mystical, uh, ritualized part of our Jewish practice and the Dalai Lama wants to know from them, how do you survive as a diasporic people? Cause by then he was in India and out of Tibet and he was just, you guys have been doing this for 2000 years with no place you call home. So how do you actually mm-hmm. keep your faith going? So it's a wonderful book and I would suggest mm. it. Um, so I, I guess the seminal part, the part that, changed everything from you, obviously, is about your daughter, about Lauren. Um, So just, I know you've written the book, and I know you've thought about it a lot, but I I would imagine even all of that isn't static, that that's a constantly changing kind of canvas. So if you were to paint it today, what would it look like? Oh, you're right. It is always changing. Um, and it goes day to day. There will be days when Rob is kind of inexplicably quiet or um, blue. And I'll say to him, OK, what is it? Have I done something? Because, you know, it's always about me. Um, <laughs> and he'll say, he'll say, now I'm having a Lou day. And uh, Lou, not meaning Lou as instead of, but a Lou day. Lou was our nickname for Lauren, one of many that we had for her. And it's just something that he saw or that he read or that a photo that he noticed on the way out to get coffee. And it just, um, they say blindside, but it's more like a little flick that just says, not so fast. Mm. Remember? Mm. Um, so, and, and there's also now that I have this visceral attachment to the subject of grief and mourning, thanks to the book, uh, people reach out to me constantly and Someone asked me last week, is it a burden? And no, it's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a gift to me. And I honor every single person's story and their grief and and everything that's happened to them. And I see it now as part of my responsibility, part of my giving back because of all of the support that they gave us, not only in the time right after Lauren died, but through my whole career, that whole firing thing, everyone who wrapped their arms around us, I'm reaching back to do the same for them. And um, I can't give advice, really. I can only say this is this is how this has worked for us and, and how our lives have, have gone. As to each day, um, it'll be five years this May. And, and I, I hate seeing the calendar turn. And I've heard this from many, many bereaved people, parents in particular, that after their child has died, the next New Year's Day is especially sad because that child has moved a little bit further away. Mm-hmm. And of course, then everybody reminds you, oh, no, she's always with you. And I have one person who always posts, she's only a heartbeat away. Really? I know. But that's that's not what I want to hear. Because and again, it goes back to those things that people say, meaning the best. But it's it's too far. And if we stop and think of everything that we've lost, it could it could just flatten you 
for days, months, maybe even forever. So instead, we have consciously chosen gratitude. That's that's how it works for us. Well, I I wonder, are we afraid of mourning as well? I mean, are we like, oh, "Oh, I don't want to go there because I'll never get out of that pit. There's that fear. And I I felt like that uh, in the early, early months. It's so funny. I would wear these little lash extensions. And I thought, no, I'm not going to cry today. I'm not going to lose those lashes. And that's so stupid. <laughs> but it, it was the thing that made sense to me at that time. Yeah. I'd say to Rob, oh, no, I cried my lashes off today. Um, <laughs> but what it's everyone is afraid of mourning. And people will treat you like you've got a disease. I've heard this from so many people, a woman I correspond with regularly, who said she lost friends when her husband died because it was like people didn't want her around. Right. It's like when people used to say, oh, I heard that she's got cancer. Yeah. You know, if you say it out loud, you know, and it's like Beetlejuice. Yeah. No. Um, when in, in reality, what is so often the case is that just hearing your loved one's name is just like such a gift. Can I say a mitzvah? Sure. Is, that a, is that the right use Indeed. of that word? Yes. Because it's just saying, oh, you remember her for a second. And, and that brings her back. And I just love that. And I don't expect everybody to stop their day and go, oh, I got to think about Lauren today. But just think, mention the name of the person that you're missing or, or that you wish was with you at the holiday table mm. or lighting a candle with you or celebrating whatever it is that you used to celebrate. Um, so you're it's, five. It's such a gift. You're five. How was Christmas? Ooh, don't have them, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, the first year we went away to a Caribbean island and just, we had massages Christmas Day. We barbecued, we we binge-watched Sherlock Holmes. It just Mm. wasn't going to happen. The rest of that week was spent answering emails that had come in seven months earlier from people because I was determined to answer every one. And then as it's gone on, it's gotten a little easier. But this Christmas, um, my former radio partner, Mike Cooper, came to visit us. We're in California right now. Um, And uh, we went to Vegas for a few days, and then we came back Christmas Eve. Rob made a turkey because we make turkey anytime we want. And uh, we this is the first time Rob and I have exchanged presents a little bit, but it was just an excuse to, to give each other something. But no carols, no tree, no decorations, no lights. You know what's the hardest? Go ahead. Ralph, the hardest is going into stores where you have no protection. And I came from a radio station that, you know, made its bones on Christmas music or Christmas music station. And mm. it was great. But being in a place where you can't control the volume, I can't even tell you how often I've had my arms full and just put things back on the rack and walked out because I could not handle the barrage of the songs and the memories. And uh, it just it just no. Um, I, I just can't handle it because it comes out of left field. I know it's November. I know it's December. It's going to happen. But no, I'm, I'm going to protect myself where I can. How old was Lauren when she passed away? 24. She was 24 and on maternity leave. Jeez. And, yeah. and yeah. how old was her child? Colin was seven months old that day. Lauren, uh, Lauren died on May 11th. She had just hours earlier celebrated her first Mother's Day and didn't wake up uh, to Colin's cries on the morning of May 11. And that was the day he turned seven months old. So 11s are pretty big for us. He was born October 11th. She died May 11th. And um, do we know what she died of? Uh, it's, not, it's not really been determined. The coroner tried so hard to, uh, to link her taking a very commonly prescribed drug in Canada called Domperidone, which is uh, motilium, uh, and given out literally like samples to mothers who are having trouble breastfeeding. And that's most of us. Right. Um, it's banned in the U.S. It's prescribed with caution in the U.K. And in Canada, it's the go-to. In fact, I read a story just a few days ago about an MLA from British Columbia. She and her wife had a baby, and they're both breastfeeding. And one of the things that the article on the cbc.ca said was, and she's taking Domperidone, which is um, an anti-nausea drug that also helps with lactation. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. This is where you put the warning in. But my voice hasn't been heard on this one. And, Ralph, when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, they could take everything we have and then some. So I'm super careful. It's not the hill I'm dying on just yet. 
which is um, a bad turn of phrase. But um, we're just trying to get the word out to young moms to get their hearts tested or old moms, whoever, get their hearts tested before they take this drug because it can jump into a heartbeat. And that's what they believe. That's what the coroner believed happened to Lauren. And a secondary coroner, coroner looked at it and went, absolutely. So, you know, they can't link it just yet, but maybe the science will change. They've still got tissue samples and stuff. So for some people, this is sort of the God moment where they just think, what God? This is the, if this can happen, there can't be God. Did, did you have any existential conversations with the meaning of all this and the fairness of all this? Oh, yeah. The fairness, especially. And uh, it takes you down because, you know, the ego says, well, you lived such a good life. You gave back. You wrote back. You worked for charities. You did this. You did that. And all these things that are supposed to be notches in your karmic column. And then this, is this the thanks you get? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that on the logical end of things. But um, the people who tried to tell us God needed another angel or it's God's plan, we just, uh, here's a throat punch. No, I didn't. I didn't even think that. Yes, I did. Um, but God needed another angel? Really? There's a shortage? Did you say that again and come um, closer? Just a little poof. Yeah, that's right. What, what, what? Oh, uh, yeah. So, but the book that changed everything for me was one that a listener sent. God bless our listeners. And it was called Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton. Hmm. Um, have, you, have you heard of this no, one? No, tell me. Oh, okay. Um, it's very funny because in a movie that I was shown in uh, rehab this past summer, that's a whole other episode probably, but it's good. Um, Will Smith is in this collateral beauty movie and he's lost his daughter at a young age and he's completely crumbled. But on the shelf is Journey of Souls. And I went, aha, somebody else has seen this book and put it in the movie. He's a psychiatrist who did hypnotherapy, not just before life or during your life, but between lives. And this is where I'm going to lose you, or some of your listeners may have to hit their heads just to get their eyes to stop rolling back. But the idea behind it is that we are all here. Our souls all travel in pods, which means that Lauren and Rob and I have been together. I knew that because Rob and I, like we were engaged three weeks after we were married. We were just like that together. That our souls have traveled together in the past and will again, and we will be together when Rob and I go on to the next level after we've learned our lessons this time around, and that this was something she had to do. And it made sense to me. And if that's God's plan, okay, that's another way of looking at it. But she was very young, very bright, very determined. She didn't even get through college before she got her first full-time job and then started anchoring the noon news package in Ottawa's News Talk Leader. She was very accomplished, very fast. Um, She proposed to her husband. She got pregnant the moment she wanted to, which was just months after their wedding, and then had Colin and then was gone. And so my question is, okay, what is Colin meant to bring to the world? What is this little boy's purpose and how can we facilitate it? That's the long answer. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, there's a, during one of the Toronto International Film Festival movie world uh, cinema weeks when the festival was actually humane and enjoyable, um, there was a lovely Argentinian film uh, where the souls basically have a very hard decision to make that they're going to re-enter this world because the world of the soul was so much less difficult in the world of, of being human. Uh, but they right. would they would sort of dive off a, a sort of divine cliff into a life. And these lives were just one time the two people in who were the central characters would be husband and wife. And then the next time would be mother and son. And the next time would mm-hmm. be father and 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 a grandfather. And so they, they were always iterating in some way their love story as souls. And I love that movie. I, I, I disappeared. I never found it again. But it, I, I have this intuition that the soul is eternal. I can't obviously prove it. And in an age mm-hmm. where you're supposed to prove everything, for me as a spiritual person, it's not that interesting. You know, if it was that easy to prove everything, then, you know, what are we doing here? So I like the mystery of things. So when you speak about that, I find it very interesting because you can look at it two ways, right? You can say, oh, I'm, 
Aaron's just rationalizing this so it's easier for her to get through. Or right. you can say there's you have a real de- feeling of, of this in your in your heart in your soul that there is uh, in Judaism we call it b'sherit, a kindred spirit, right? Uh, and that mm-hmm. you and you know them when you see them, right? Like yeah. when Peter yeah. when Peter Kent was still a journalist, uh, mm-hmm. he met his wife in South Africa, and three weeks later they were married. There you go. And they're still married, right? So, you know, you never never really know. I don't know. I mean, I think some people think there's supposed to be some strategy so that it doesn't hurt. But I'm not sure that's a healthy thing to think when it comes to mourning people, that it's going to hurt once in a while. How can it not? How can it not? The writer Anne Lamott put it so beautifully. She wrote this piece. And when I do a speech, I end with it. And she said, your heart has been broken and it will never be the same again. And that's the bad news. But the good news is, and I'm paraphrasing, it's, it's open to so much more. And it wraps up by saying, you, it's, you will learn to dance again, but with a limp. Right. And that's so perfect. And Rob and I are dancing. We're dancing. And with a limp, and sometimes the limp shows, and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the weather, and the weather, of course, being a metaphor for what's going on in our day. But, yeah, that's, I think, for us, the idea that there is some sort of a logic or a purpose or a meaning behind this, and that it's not all random, and that we're energy that never, ever dies, and that she is with us, Um, but that we can go on. And to find joy, there's a woman who, um, who... shared with me the story of her son's death by suicide. And she imagines him saying to her when they meet up again, okay, mom, what did you do with your life? And the answers to that could be, well, when you died, my life ended. Thank you very much. But instead, in our case, what we've decided to do is to just keep moving forward, keep being joyful, keep Colin and his new baby sister in our family and our hearts, and to help others through this and to let them know that it doesn't have to be the end. It's the beginning of a different life, that chasm in your life. It's just the beginning of a different one where you will dance again with a limp. The name of the book is Morning is Broken. Aaron Davis is my guest. Uh, you threw in a rehab and then kept yeah. going. Uh, oh, you caught that, did you, Ralph? <laughs> Excuse me while I have my Baileys. No, this is coffee. I <laughs> that, never did like Baileys, and I never drank in the morning. I want everyone who ever listened to CHFI to know that. That's right. sounded Hi, like it. Mike, I love you, man. It's a great That's show. Right. Look, I love That's you. Right. I, love I love you, you all. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the rehab would have meant that the uh, drinking was still a self-medicating way of getting through this, right? Oh, yes. And the thing is, here's the funny part, Ralph. I decided in 2006, after my life and my career and everything got going, that, uh, yeah, this was becoming an encumbrance. It, I, it was not good for me. It was not good for the show. It was just not good. And uh, so in 2006, when everything was going great, I decided, okay, I'm going to stop. And I read a wonderful book called The Thinking Person's Guide to Sobriety by Bert Kleiman, who is a Texas-based lawyer who was this phenom and presented and won a case before the Supreme Court and on and on. So I love this book because it had stories of people whose basement wasn't living under a bridge. It was a high-level basement like I was having, okay? Success, happiness, money, everything. So I related to this, and I thought, okay, I can do this. And I used it, and I went back to it like alcoholics go back to to the big book. But 10 years, so that was 2006, okay? 2015, Lauren dies. I stay sober. It was my retirement in 2016 that made me feel like I could test to see if there was an off switch because I didn't have anybody to answer to. I had lost my identity again. I'd given it away. I decided I was going to change. We were going to change our lives, our locations, everything. And that's when I thought, hey, maybe I can do this. And it turned out that I, no, I did not have an off switch. You don't develop an off switch any more than someone allergic to peanuts can take 10 years and go back and have a peanut butter sandwich and survive it. Right. So, Isn't that yeah. interesting? Mm-hmm. You, you, you make a, a big, why, why did you decide? Uh, we're ch- Rob, we're changing our lives. Why did you guys decide that? It was a tough decision. Everything Ralph had changed except us. Everyone had moved on, but us mm-hmm. after May, 2015, um, I was, off the air for one month, went back June 11th, my dad's birthday, another 11th. There we go. Um, and then the following January, my beloved dance partner, Mike Cooper, 
left because his wife was um, in the last few years of her stage four colon cancer. So he wanted to spend all the time he could with Debbie. They've been married for like almost 50 years, just an incredible love story. Mm -hmm. And they were the other half of each other's sky. So I understood. So I got a new dance partner, but I realized that we didn't have the trust for each other. Um, We didn't... um, I I just didn't have it in me to learn or teach new dance steps. So that summer, the summer of 2016, Rob and I came out to BC and we, you know how when you're on your vacation and you're sitting on a beach and you go, yeah, I could live here. I have to sell everything, open a moped dealership, but I could do this. (laughs) Yep. But it's Victoria and you go, I could live here. This is part of Canada. I've got family, a dad and two sisters in Kelowna. So, and the island is just the right distance away. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so. The ferry's so coming. Decided, the ferry's coming. <laughs> that's right. Here they come. Showboat. Okay. So we decided we found the perfect house and we could wait for a year. But the, uh, the psychologist I was seeing said a year is an awfully long time. And he was right. And so CHFI very kindly let me out of my contract. We sold everything in our condo, sold it to Mike, as a matter of fact, our, mm. our downtown condo, uh, emptied out the dream house we'd built on Lake Simcoe, sold it, and uh, and just, you know, measured a buck a pound for everything we were going to move and decided what we were going to take. You know, Phil, Lauren's widower, had moved on. He'd found a, a lovely new wife. They were building a life together. The station had moved on with a new partner for me. Everyone had moved on but us. Mm. So we decided it was time to, to make a change. And that's when the book proposal came to me too. My last week in Toronto, Harper Collins came to me and said, we think you've got a book in you. And I went, okay. So that opened a new chapter quite literally to my life as soon as we moved to BC. So there you go. It's funny how sometimes really we think, first of all, we think we have some control over all this. Yeah, right. But sometimes it's also that we still need a push. You know, we, we don't just go, nah, you know what, it's time. There just seems sometimes... Change is hard, and change is not something we easily embrace. But you, you, mm. but there always seems to be a time where change is going to come, and it it has its own momentum. Moving yeah. out there has what? What's, I always love the West Coast, and I I always feel very um, connected to the planet, and find spiritual life easy to access, as opposed to sort of the yeah. concrete jungle of Toronto. Uh, what what's your experience been well first it was loneliness just so lonely we have an aunt and uncle there who live nearby but uh, we we just we were so lonely and so we joined rotary right away i'm not a joiner i'm an introvert which is the craziest thing but you would probably relate to that you know we do our thing on the microphone and uh, if i can walk into a room and people know who i am i feel comfortable but if i have to win them over yeah or, you know, <laughs> sit in the couch with my person? wife and talk just to my wife. I don't know these people yes! and they're scaring the hell out of me. <laughs> exactly. And of course, you you have a face that, that people knew from television all that time, too. So uh, that's a different kind of, yeah. of not fitting in. But, um, yeah, very lonely, um, very peaceful. Our backyard has deer in it and trees that blossom throughout the year and hummingbirds year round and and, you know, whales and oceans and mountains. Oh, my. And and we have that view from our house. We're not the, not the whales. We have to go to Souk to see them. Mm. But it's just it's just so glorious. It's a beautiful place to heal. It is. It really is. Oh, uh, yeah. Everything you're saying, I've, I've lived some of those experiences, the Souk potholes and just, oh, to, you yeah. know, uh, Mystic and China Beach and all those different places. They're so lovely. Yeah. Not like the potholes in Toronto at all. These are actually in the water. They're meant to be there, and they're not going to wreck your car. Yeah, no, they might make you feel better, though. I mean, the healing—the yeah. healing is so interesting. So, when I morning has broken, must have brought you a whole cohort of people who really have had no one to articulate for them what what it's like to to go through loss without just everybody trying to cheer you up. Oh, yeah, that's been the main response that I've gotten is people say, thank God somebody knows what I'm going through. Or uh, I found myself nodding every time I was turning a page. 
and and that was that was really gratifying because to be able to to say okay here's what we've gone through because i mean as a people as a as a as a as human beings we used to tell our stories around the fire we would have this commonality this thread of humanity that linked us and it's it's just gone or has been dissipated so much and um or has dissipated so much and to be able to reflect back to people what they're feeling and have it resonate with them is just is just incredible. And I've been toying with the idea of a second book and kind of putting it out there. Okay, what should it be about? More people want me to talk more about loss and mourning. And I'm thinking, don't know if I want to go into that well again, mm. but certainly just to reflect more people's stories and experiences and what worked for them. Well, I have a friend uh, who was... Um a PhD and an addict. And he, he was leading a double life while getting his PhD because he was hooked on opioids years ago. This is years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, where one chapter as a neuroscientist, he would describe what each drug would do to your brain. It was called the addicted brain. And then the next chapter would be him in the beaches in Toronto, breaking in, to a house in the night to steal from the medicine chest just to get some wow. opioids, right? And uh, he yeah. en he ended up getting through it all. But what happened was a whole bunch of people all over the world really wanted to now have him to talk to. Um, right. But the second book he wrote was really their stories. It wasn't his story at all. It was collecting their mm -hmm. stories. So when I when I hear you and how many people have, have reached out, I wonder if a compilation of other people's stories with a bit of threading from you would be the book. But then I also think, do you want to be Aaron Davis the mourner for the rest of your life? Or is there something that you're thinking, wait a minute, I can't carry the water for everybody on this one. I have my own journey. That's a good question. And, and it, it sort of falls into, well, what is my purpose here? Um, I actually, Ralph, you want to, you want to hear the craziest thing? I want to do just for laughs in Toronto this fall. Mm. I want to get up on the stage and tell the funniest stories about the stupid things people say without making it about mourning and about sadness because humor has really helped Rob and I the most. So that is the most outside wacky, crazy idea that I have. No, I love it just that. Goes, well, you know, I mean, no, seriously, I am I love that, that person. Right. I mean, well, it, it comes to you naturally. Like your your ability to to speak and then say something funny is organic to who you are. It's not some it, affectation. It's who you are. Well, it is. And and uh, some people may not find it appropriate because that's not how they deal with sadness and loss, but for me and and for Mike a lot on the morning show what we would do is if we had something sad to talk about, we would weave it into something funny making fun of each other or saying, you know, just, you know, we, we did a podcast last week for someone, Mike and I, he had, when he was here a few weeks back and we were talking about, you know, Debbie not being there and in bed next to him. And, and, um, it, it ended up being funny because it talked about her wearing a, a, a sleep mask because, because she needed to sleeping with him. So it just, you know, it turns into, if we can laugh about our loss, that's, that's dancing with a limp. Yeah. And, um, I really, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about the book, but I also know it's probably going to have to do with, with recovery from addiction because, again, there's a lot of funny stuff in that too. Um, but it's something that, oh my gosh, I mentioned it in a tweet on December 30th and it just went crazy. Mm. And I didn't mean it to. I wasn't looking for congratulations on my six month sobriety. Big deal. Right. But just to say, you know what, if losing your child doesn't make you, doesn't make it okay to drink your face off, maybe maybe you're going to be okay. And that's right. what resonated with people who wanted to know, how do I do this? What's the secret? And I won't ever give advice. I'll only give support. Well, you know, there's the part about the wound, right? And some yeah. of our wounds are, we're inevitably going to be wound, wounded by just living a life. I've always wondered though, it really it's a question of how do we tend to the wound? And sometimes in yeah. Buddhist terms, we're skillful in how we tend to it. And sometimes mm -hmm. we're unskilled. Uh, an unskilled in the Buddhist tradition would be to drink your way out of it. A skilled would that's be... That's right, pouring alcohol on it. You know, yeah. that sounds medicinal, but it's not really. <laughs> <laughs> it might disinfect, but that's about it. Right. And yeah, maybe I misread something. I don't know. <laughs> so for me, I'm always thinking, am I... 
I have my wounds. What part of me is dealing with them and how skillful am I in dealing with those wounds? Because they're, they're there. You can't live this long and not have bumped into the furniture more than once and really taken some big gashes out of yourself. But when it comes yeah. to the loss of a, of a child, that's just, that's, I think, all of our greatest fears. I don't know yeah. how I would be. And I think we all imagine that we're going to get up every single morning and weigh a thousand pounds and drag mm. ourselves through this life and think, I don't deserve to be happy. I don't deserve to be living. Why not me? Why her? It's not fair. Yeah. Uh, what did I do wrong? Uh, I knew this was going to, I knew something horrible would happen. I'd had way too many good things happen in my life. You know, I mean, there's a million. Oh, that was, that was my first thing. You know what? Very early on in the morning, Ralph, um, uh, I said to Rob, it's the monkey's paw. It's the monkey's paw. And he's like, what are you talking about? And it's where you make this wish and it comes true, but the price of it is going to be horrific. And that was, that was a, maybe that was my Catholicism coming true that, that, you know what? Yeah, you're not, you're going to get taken down. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. And, um, because I used to sing to Rob all the time from the sound of music somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And because I felt so lucky. And I remember my late mom saying to me, Aaron, you're so lucky. Why don't you buy a lottery ticket? And I said, I've already won the lottery. And I had again and again and again and again. And then, you know, coming back from the OLC, I get hit by a truck. So that's, uh, I can't even imagine, but it'd kill you. It'd kill you if you, if you dwell on that. Um, and you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't my idea to go out and, well, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to turn this into a great thing. And I'm going to become the poster child for mourning and bereaved moms and, and whatever that I never had that. Oh, better that, yet. That aim. Better yet. Uh, this is going to happen. And, uh, I'm going to go on just for laughs. Yeah. I yeah. mean, how Relax the hell do you get relapse. there from, just for laughs, I'm going to go on. Oh, right. Just for laughs. Right? Like just for laughs. You see how I heard hey, that? Just for laughs. Hey, you know what? That could be the, the, the title of the show. Just relapse. <laughs> I <laughs> right. love it. I get 2%. Right. I just get 2%, but I get 2%. Um, okay. I like this quote. At the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or did. They'll remember how you made them feel, which you put in one of your blogs from Maya Angelou. What made you put oh, that yeah. one in? Oh, because it's, it, it all comes back to what people say to you and how they react or how they don't even show up, whether it's an email or a card. So many people would say, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry about Lauren. I didn't know what to say. And I would say, that's all right. There are no words. And it's the people, and I, I dove into this, and people just really grabbed onto the at least, at least you have a grandson. At least you still have a husband. Yeah, I got yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. At least she didn't suffer. At least, at least, at least. But those are for us to say. The ones who are looking for a way to survive and to keep going, um, the at least are for us, but not for the people trying to console us. Because I, believe me, we've... Oh, it's, it's so yeah. difficult, though, because really what they're trying to say is, in, in their own broken way, I love you and I'm so sorry. Right? Yeah. But or, it, it's not. it could be worse. But as my friend Iris <laughs> says, it's bad enough. No, you know? no. Anybody who <laughs> said do, it could and, be worse and, would have to leave the room. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, right. but no. Actually, couldn't be worse. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, it could. And there are so many people. There's no blue ribbon for grief. And no, there are exactly. so many people. You, you read the stories of the Iranians and the families yeah. who are just absolutely gone, erased, gone. And all there is left is the sadness and the echoes of where their laughter and who they used to be. But you know, it could always be worse. And there are people who've had it so much worse than we are. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from Palm Springs. It right. could be worse. And we recognize that. But it's just, it is bad enough. In, in Judaism, we, our, the disease we have to worry about is one downmanship. Oh, tell me about that. Well, I, I come in and I go, oh, I have to tell you, my hip, it's killing me. My hip is killing me. And, the other and then I say, oh, your hip, oh, my hip and my knee. That's Are right. you kidding? It's never been worse. That's right. Your hip. Okay. I got it. Your hip. Who cares about <laughs> you? You want trouble? I'll give you trouble. 
I got a thing. It's growing on my neck. It's a thing. I don't know what it is. I don't even want to go see what it is. Because if it's a thing, I'm going to be killed. I don't want to be killed. I'm not going to the doctor. I won't get killed. Doctors. Let me tell you you about doctors. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You go to the doctor and they only give you bad news. Well, that's because something's wrong with you. You know, it's funny when you were talking about you and Mike Cooper. And for a brief couple of years, I worked with Valerie Pringle and we did a show called Midday. And um, that chemistry you talked about, you know, we had it immediately and we had such a great time and she became my television wife. And uh, I loved that. So I, when you talk about what you and Mike did and, and how you connected and you and Dawn before that, you know, I just think so great because there are so many blessings weaved into all this sorrow that, Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and our friendship, Mike and I, our friendship endures. I mean, through the loss of his wife and, uh, and he knew and loved Lauren. And so we just get together and we laugh and we make terrible jokes about death and mourning and us, you know, um, and, and just, it, it's, it's hilarious because we, we have that, you know, almost unspoken kind of, uh, a link. And yet we, we talk, we laugh and it's so dark and so blue, but it's, it's that kindred spirit thing where you just, you know, you're going to be okay with them no matter what your good days, your bad days, whatever. And what a gift, what a gift he's been to us. And, and, you know, he'll drunk text me at night and say, you know, friends for life. And I, absolutely, you know, we, and we just are, we are. And he loves Rob too. He, he punches Rob verbally all the time and Rob loves it. And they just laugh. It's great. What, what we haven't talked about Rob, but yeah. What, what, what's, tell me that part of the story. The Rob and, and you and the Rob and Lauren part. He was so close to Lauren, the little girl. Um, I mourned Lauren, the daughter who became uh, sort of a co-worker almost. We didn't work together, but we were we were on the same level. We were equals in loving radio, and I had perspectives for her, and she had perspectives, and she kind of understood what my life was when she got into it. We had become so close in terms of her being a mom and her understanding my deep, deep, deep love for her. But Rob, all those years that I was getting up and being in the studio by five or six in the morning, he was waking up with Lauren, braiding her hair, making her, making sure she was dressed for school photos, making her lunch, taking her to school on the back of his uh, uh, motorcycle and everybody thinking, you know, she had a hot boyfriend when she was in high school. <laughs> Keep a helmet on, Rob. Um, all of these, they were so close. But when she married and moved out, Rob mourned then. He mourned that. I cried for days, but he mourned his little girl yeah. gone. And and so when he remembers her, he remembers her differently than I do. Mm. And so he sees her a lot in her son, whereas I, I can't let myself see her in him because I think that that would, you know, somehow make it all more real. But I miss my friend that when I was on the way down from the cottage for work at four in the morning, I could text her cause she was up breastfeeding. So we had that quiet time, just her and me. And it was, it was so magical. And there's, yeah, but yeah. back to Rob. Yeah. He, uh, he mourns quietly because he's afraid that when he's sad, it's going to bring me down because I'm really empathic and we're just so in lockstep all the time. It's called codependency. I understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like lockstep on this one, but okay. Yes. Yeah. And so he's always been there to encourage me and be there for me. But who takes care of the goalie? Who takes care of the, the producer? Who takes care of the man behind the scenes who makes me show up and shine? So it's I've had to learn that. Um, I mean, I've always cared for him and loved him, but he's always been like, no, it's all right. I'll take care of you. And he needs this, too. And God help the couples who who can't communicate and don't have that trust to fall back on yeah. because Something in that uh, Collateral Beauty movie that I mentioned says something like 70 or 80 percent of couples who lose a child don't survive as a couple. And, of course, Lauren had moved out and we were empty nesters. She was our one and only, but we were empty nesters. And um, excuse me. And so we we had this other relationship. We we didn't have, you know, a a little girl's room to walk past or the bicycle in the garage or all those things that other people are tormented by every day. Jeez. Yeah. So the name of the show is Just Relapse. 
We've decided Just that. relapse. I love it, Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> Wreck it, Ralph. There we go. And, I love uh, it. I love it. I love I, it. I know some guys at JFL, so, you know, if you want it, we'll, we'll hook you up. You'll get the show. You'll super kill, as they say in the business. Well, make sure you don't do a typo and get me booked at JFK because I'm no good in an airport. Okay, no. it's just one letter off from JFL. You just got the wrong part of the airport. You got to. Do you ever hear an album from Brian Eno called "Music for Airports"? No, okay. it sounds great. It it is all tonal and a vocal, and it's ambient. Uh, oh, wow. it, it's a major ambient piece, and I've always thought they should play it at airports because airports are full of anxiety and apprehension yeah, but- and loss of control and fear. And you play yeah. this beautiful tonal music in it. And I would think this would just soothe everyone who's racing to gate 42 because they didn't look at their ticket properly or they're late or whatever. Uh, and sometimes I just think that there's music that can soothe our souls and our souls really need to be fed as much as our human bodies do in, in one way or another. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. We, we just simply don't take the time, even 10 minutes to meditate. It's just, I don't know, unplugging, literally. I don't know why it's so hard for us to do the thing we know perfectly well is the good thing to do for ourselves. Oh, cognitive dissonance. It's how we function. If we did things that were good for us, as he sits there with his Diet Coke. (laughs) 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 Rabbi, heal thyself. (laughs) Well, listen, morning uh, has broken. The name of the book, Aaron Davis. Uh, I wish you and I were doing a, a radio show on Vancouver Island. I'd be a happy guy. I would love that. Well, never say never, Ralph. Never you say never, never, as we've all learned, right? Never That's know right. what the universe has in store. Well, one of the things that you say uh, in, in our tradition is, uh, may her memory be a blessing to you and to yeah. yours. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And I won't say goodbye. I'll say, we'll see you again. Is that what I say? Perfect. Okay. And I, I'm, I'm, I did sit Shiva once or visit some people who were, and I don't know if I, now you've got me going back 20 years and wondering if I said goodbye properly. So right. I'll just say, and did you eat too we'll many, talk again. Did you eat too much of the coleslaw? There are decisions that have to be made. That's right. <laughs> All right. But thankfully the mirrors were covered, so yeah. I was happy. That was <laughs> always helps for everybody. We should do that just generally. Um, Honestly, thank you so much, Aaron. Take care of yourself and take care of Rob. And uh, God love you for everything you're doing. Thank you so much, Ralph, and my love to you and to Toronto Mike who is always got to thank the producer, the ones who make it all happen as we do. Yeah. And uh, and and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.